This is a unique podcast exploring the criminal justice system and those involved and affected. We'll educate and expose the public as well as potential jurors to what takes place behind the scenes of those who are facing the system. Your host owns a litigation support firm called Justice Technology Professionals, and he works on criminal and civil cases offering support to defendants and counsel. What you're about to hear is an open dialogue opening the minds to the public to what takes place in reality as opposed to what you think takes place ladies and gentlemen welcome to the justice tech pros podcast here's your host dominic crea hello listeners welcome to another edition of the uh Justice Tech Pros Podcast. I think we're on 99 today, getting close to that 100 mark. That's crazy to me to think I've done 100 of these. And actually a little more because I know some of them I didn't number. They were just one-offs. So that's uh, crazy. <laughs> Three and a half years on this uh, podcast. It's, it's scary how quickly time goes. But anyway, today's podcast, I wanted to <clears throat> talk about a few topics. Um a uh, few things that I wrote down throughout the course of different weeks that I wanted to remember and talk about and elaborate on. The first thing I really wanted to uh, dive into and dissect a little bit has to do with uh, violation on supervised release. And I want to just show how sometimes these courts just make it blatantly obvious how biased they truly are depending on who the defendant is. And I want to just show an example of that uh, so people could just see how sometimes these things play out. Now, this isn't an episode to say, oh, why did this person get this time and this one get that time? Uh, I don't care about that. That's irrelevant. What I try to judge is just to see if the system is following through in a fair manner where everybody's being treated equally under under the eyes of the law, which is supposed to be the way it's... Uh, should happen, right? So I want to just show an example of that, how time and again that doesn't happen. Um, So basically, whenever you have somebody who's on supervised release, supervised release is like the federal form of parole. On the state level, they have parole. The federal level, you have supervised release. Uh, Sometimes you get ordered if you're a defendant. After you serve your jail time, you have to do a certain amount of time on supervised release. So oftentimes what happens is you'll have a federal informant who will make a deal, and when they're done with the deal, uh, terms of the deal, if they don't get any jail time or if they get a little jail time, terms of the deal uh, will also encompass a term of supervised release, uh, three years, five years, depending at the judge's discretion. Now what that's basically saying is if you do anything that falls outside of the guidelines of the term set by the supervised release, you risk going back to prison. You violated your supervised release, uh, depending on the terms. And why, why I stress on the terms, uh, different people sometimes have different terms that they have, that they have to adhere to. Uh, so if um, uh, sometimes they'll tell you you can't associate with certain people, not just felons. They'll actually like uh, list people. They'll say you can't be around this one, you can't be around that one. That happens oftentimes in organized crime cases where they'll specifically name individuals. And then other times, you know, it's just a standard where across the board, no, um, 
no felons and everything's pretty standard. But if you break any of that, you have uh, a supervised release uh, revocation hearing where they talk about revoking the supervised release and then um, either sending you back to jail or whatever penalty they may they may come up with. So I wanted to show an example because I was reminded of something recently. There was a uh, an informant named uh, Gene Borello. He's a uh, an informant that was on YouTube for a while. He was an informant who took part in organized crime cases. Uh, we've done a few things on him on We Push Back, showing um, a lot of his inconsistencies as well, and also spotlighting his behavior where he supposedly was changed and. That's not really what we're seeing. But anyway, my point is this. This individual was violated. He violated <clears throat> the terms of his parole, of his supervised release. Now, what's interesting about this case is um, sometimes you could violate the terms of your uh, supervised release, but you're not really breaking the law. You know, like in other words, if they tell you you can't meet with a felon and you meet with a felon, you did violate the supervised release, but you're in no danger of getting charges for like breaking the law and whatnot. Uh, this example is very interesting to me because it shows a, a, a severe uh, contrast in how a defendant's treated who's not a federal informant or an informant of any type versus a defendant who's treated when they are an informant. Now, in the case of Gene Borello, for those who are not familiar, this um, federal informant was, uh, it, as part of when he violated his terms of supervised release, he, he did things that were both in violation of just the terms of the release. And what I mean by that is he wasn't supposed to go to Florida and he went to Florida. He wasn't supposed to be on the internet. He went on the internet. Uh, he wasn't supposed to be associating with felons. He associated with felons. The, those are all the terms violating the supervised release, correct? So that's where you have a hearing. Now, with this case, it's a little more in-depth. This informant not only violated the supervised release, but he apparently broke the law where he was brought, where they're looking to charge him. He was hit with different charged uh, counts. I don't remember how many counts there were, but there were several charged counts, and in his last... At his last hearing, they only addressed two of those charged counts uh, as it related to their decision on revoking the supervised release. But he had several charged, charged counts. So in addition to violating the supervised release, he's going to have another issue of possibly dealing with those charged accounts and facing more time. But my point is this. This person is a federal informant, made a deal with the government, uh, several times promised as part of that deal uh, when they were in front of the judge that they were going to change their life, do things the right way, you know, start a new leaf, the whole, the whole song and dance, right? In addition, the government gave glowing 5K1 letters about how this individual uh, wants to start over and has helped the government so much, all that, right? Okay. Now, he goes in for the hearing of supervised, uh, for violating a supervised release, and for violating his supervised release, where it encountered serious infractions of domestic abuse and stalking, serious things that uh, turned into f charges, for that violation, this judge decided, and again, this is a compare-contrast type thing. This isn't to say, oh, this one got more, this one got less. I want to show how one-sided the system could be, depending on the judge and depending on their bias. 
So you have this federal informant. He got a term of six months, okay, for his, uh, for his supervised release infraction. So they wound up sentencing him for six months for, remember now, not only did he violate his supervised release, but he also broke the law. He has some pending charges and he has some charges. So it was a little deeper than just the violation is the point I'm trying to make. Uh, the violation aspect was if you meet with felons, uh, if you leave the state like he did. So he did those uh, as well in addition committing charges. So... With all that said, the judge decided, okay, six months for that supervised release uh, infraction, okay? And they revoked the supervised release, and he has to go do the uh, six months based on that. Now I want to bring you back to a similar story and how the results were a lot different. So you have two defendants years ago, and I'm going to pull it up. These defendants were accused of... Uh, uh, being an organized crime, and they were sentenced to uh, time, and they had, they came out, and they were serving the supervised release. Now, ter term of their supervised release was, you can't meet with other felons. You're just not allowed. So the two defendants, unfortunately, they broke the supervised release, and they went and had a bowl of pasta together. They went and had lunch together. Now they pull these gentlemen in, into court. They violate them. They have the violation proceedings. So now, just to remind you, a federal informant, okay, who broke supervised release by not only breaking the terms, but also committing crimes in addition to breaking the supervised release, received six months for his infraction, okay? Now you have two defendants. So now, here we go. You have two defendants. As to Stephen Crea and Dominic Trucello, this was back in 99, uh, for their violation, they're going to be sentenced to nine months, okay? So these two individuals got nine months in jail based on having lunch together over a bowl of pasta. And again, folks, I just want to highlight that to show when you have a biased judge, when you have a judge who doesn't go by uh, Lady Justice is Blind, this is the result, different treatment based on how the government feels about you. So if the government feels you're an informant who helped them, you're going to get a different uh, sentence if you break the exact same terms that were issued to another defendant who maybe the government doesn't like, isn't an informant, isn't working with them, isn't helping them out, and they just don't like that person, they're going to get a higher sentence. Now, does that make any sense in the eyes of the law? Again, I know you're going to get people, well, they're bad people, they deserve it. That's your opinion. You're entitled to believe that. But... That's not how the law works. That's all I'm trying to point out here. If you're going by the law and the rules of the law and Lady Justice being blind and it all applies, this is a small example. And these are only two defendants. I could show countless examples of defendants getting high supervised release um, revocation time after once it was revoked and they got hit with the time to serve based on that. I could show countless examples of this. I just, for obvious reasons, I wanted to show this one. And um, again, nine months for having going to lunch and having a bowl of pasta. Nine months for that. But you get a, uh, an informant who if you, and if you go to wepushback.com, you could read everything that this informant's being charged with. All of the crimes he committed, all of the um, 
infractions he had made while being while supposedly being uh, part of supervised releasing and having to adhere to the terms. So just think about that, folks. Again, this isn't about, oh, they gave him less time. They get, that, that has nothing to do with it. All I'm trying to show here is a cut, a clear-cut example of how in the eyes of the law sometimes, justice is not blind. And the judge sometimes has certain bias, and his sentencing, his behavior or his or her behavior, how they operate in a courtroom, bleeds through oftentimes in their decisions as to how biased they truly are. But again, to me, just from the outside looking in, if you just look at the situation, somebody with common sense, you would never think that two defendants who broke supervised release having lunch together get more time than a defendant who broke supervised release committing domestic abuse, stalking, violations and gets six months, gets less time than the individuals who met for lunch. It's really mind boggling when you think about it. And I know, I know people maybe don't think about it that often. And, and, and again, you get a lot of people, well, they're bad guys. They deserve it. Okay. That's fine. That's not how the law works. That's all I'm trying to explain here. People try to say I'm defending bad guys. No, those are all the morons who don't listen to what I'm saying. What I'm saying is just forget about feelings, forget about personal opinions on people. Just look at the facts and how it applies to the law. And when you look at it based on facts, based on the law, based on procedure, anybody could see that it's out of balance, that there's something wrong and things need to change. And to be real, folks, it's not going to change. Judges are going to be biased. People are going to be biased. That's life. So what I try to do is just expose it, just so people think about it, maybe reflect on it, and who knows? Maybe it has some changes down the road for other defendants. So that was one topic that I really wanted to cover and just uh, cite an example, just to have the listeners think about that and reflect about that a little bit. Uh, and that's just an example of one of the reasons why I... I uh, I'm so focused on the podcasts and trying to get information out there because I know a lot of the public just isn't aware of what takes place. And just I think it's it's information that's very important, very vital to the criminal justice system, just to understand it on a whole. The other item I wanted to jump into came up a few weeks ago and I wanted to kind of talk about it. We pushed back posted a motion on uh, the website, and it had to do with the lying informant Howard Santos, and it had to do with the defense team of the defendant that Howard Santos was uh, testifying against. And the defense team put in a motion for a bail hearing. And it's funny because you have a lot of people, and of course the informant, but he would say that, you know, people are going to deny certain things. But you have a lot of people, I noticed a lot of content creators, who really don't understand how the law works, and a lot of people in general were making comments like, oh, well, that was for his bail hearing. They could put every, anything they want in there. I, I don't think they really know that much about the law and know about defense and know about the cases. Uh, you can't just, as an officer of the court, as part of the defense team, you can't just put whatever you want into a motion to make your client look good and to make somebody else look bad. You're not allowed to do that. You can't falsify facts. You can't make stuff up. You're submitting that to a court. You have a big problem if you get caught doing that. So everything that a defense team push, puts in, there has to be a basis for. Now, I'm not saying one way or another. That's up to the public to decide what they believe, what they don't believe. But when they put in that information, 
you best believe they have backup for that. They have investigation. A defense team, usually they'll work hand-in-hand with a PI. They'll bring in a private investigator. They'll build a defense team. They'll hire an organization such as myself for litigation support. And everybody works in tandem with researching as much as they can, researching on uh, witnesses, informants, as much as they can on the case. So they'll come up with different things through the efforts of their investigation. So when people say, oh, well, they just put that on a bail hearing, it's a lie. They really have no idea what they're talking about because the judge could, and has done many times, they'll ask for clarification. They'll ask the, the defense, well, what are you basing this on? What is this based on? I need to see more information. I need to understand it. So now if you just start dropping lies and the judge asks you for clarification or to show you what led you to that conclusion or what basis that comes from, or why you're even mentioning that. And if you're stuttering and being like, oh, oh, and it comes to fruition that you made that up, well, guess what? You can forget about your law license. You you can have a big problem. So I just found that very interesting. It just, unfortunately, goes to show how a lot of these content creators, they really don't know what they're talking about when it comes to the law and the process, and they just put stuff out. I mean, I guess what's concerning is if people believe it without understanding, and that's the key, folks. I don't tell anybody to believe what I'm saying. What I do tell you to do is listen to at least my side of things. Then go listen to everything else. But you can't just listen to one source and then start citing it and, and, and regurgitating it as gospel and making it as if it's concrete facts. That's just not accurate. So when people start saying, oh, yeah, well, the defense put the motion out, so there's all lies in there. They have no idea what they're talking about. They have no idea what it takes for the defense to put those motions together. You have to get all your investigative sources. You have to cite your sources. You have to have a basis of why you're going down that route. Route. If you're making claims about somebody, you have to be able to substantiate those claims or justify why you're saying those things. You can't just invent stuff. And then it just boils down to a matter of he said, she said. And that's what people, if you notice, folks, the informants freak out if you don't believe them. Well, on my, on my, in my world, on We Push Back, on Justice Tick Pros, on everything I do, I don't care if you agree with me or not. I'm not here to convince you. You're welcome to. That's, that's what it's all about, being an individual, being free of your own decisions. All I want to do, my only role is I ask, and the one thing I do ask, just listen to everything. Just understand everything before you draw your conclusion. That's my only point. I just want you to take it all in before you start making determinations. But if you notice with them right away, when that thing went up on that informant, when they saw a motion from the defense, oh, it's lies, Uh, the defense is going to say whatever they want to get their client out. No, no, the defense can't say whatever they want to get their client out. There has to be an investigative process. There has to be a foundation. There has to be something credible based on the memo or the brief that you're submitting. You can't just invent stuff. (laughs) The law doesn't work that way. And it it really is amusing how... um, on social media and YouTube, people just throw out... I mean, I shouldn't be surprised. Think about all the crazy conspiracy stuff, right? So it's really not shocking. I mean, the social media is filled, filled with that. But it's just amazing. People will take something that has no factual basis and just, that's it. They'll run with it. That's it. Oh, uh, the defense could say whatever they want. It's all lies. No, not that cut dry. You need to educate yourself more. You need to look into the situation more and you need to understand the law more and you need to understand how motions work and you need to understand the process.
Excuse me, I'm taking a sip of water. Oh, look at that. You see my hand unscrewing the imaginary cap. <laughs> All right. Um, so that's the point I really wanted to get across with that when it comes to defense motions and briefs and memos. And that's really going to be the focus on the We Push Back website, the database. It's going to give the defense a, uh, a voice. Everything that uh, people aren't aware of, because as we know, the media machine is run by the government. So all those sites, all the sites that talk about quote unquote gangsters and all that, they're getting all their stuff from, you know, the, uh, the prosecution's filing, the press releases, the informants talking about it. So it's very one-sided, their sources. So it's about time the defendants had a bit of a voice in all this. And the defendants had a little bit of a, a say as to their opinion on a lot of these lying informants that are now spreading lies. And that's, that's the key here, folks, listening to as much information as you can. Uh, the other thing I wanted to touch on, which I, I find very interesting, and I think it's going to be, um, I don't want to say a wake-up call, but I think, I think it's something that needs to be understood. A lot of these uh, hosts who have the informants on and whatnot, I've spoken about that. I did my whole show on that. As everybody knows, I don't agree with any host platform in these line informants. It's not for me. I don't believe in it. I see them doing a lot of damage, in my opinion. Uh, I could debate that all day, and I'm sure they could debate me on it all day. They feel one way, I feel another. I can't relate to it. But one thing that's interesting, and it's, it's obviously coming to light with what I'm working on as far as the appeal in the case related to Korea, Madonna, Londonio, and Caldwell, as uh, you know, we're preparing for the appeal, and if we get assigned the new trial, the trial is going to have a lot of interesting uh, people that will be part of the trial based on the defense strategy. And it's funny because there's uh, a few content creators. Uh, one in particular, he has a channel. He's, I don't know. He's always bringing my name up in his posts like, oh, Korea this and that. The guy's, I think he's like a TV salesman or something. I don't even know. I don't even know. But the funny part is this individual made a lot of posts a while ago and our team grabbed them all where he was talking about the informant John Panisi having a relationship with the girl through Instagram that was inappropriate. And what these hosts don't realize, once, once defense teams are aware of those things, and he's not the only one, there's a few hosts who will probably uh, um, be confronted with the same issue, whereas when the defense team hears those things and those things are brought to our attention... Uh, when a trial happens, you have to subpoena these people. You have to understand. You want to get the details. I mean, that for example, that thing with Panisi, that's, a, that's an issue that needs to be addressed. That's an issue that will need to be uh, fleshed out, flushed out when the time comes uh, to know exactly what took place with this young girl. What were the texts like? What information like? What was information is this host privy to? And there's a few examples of that. Uh, a lot of these informants made the rounds. They went on different shows, different, different uh, host channels. So for all the defendants, the defense teams, maybe if you've been indicted, you're going up against uh, maybe an informant that's on YouTube, keep track of all these hosts. Keep track of the channels they go on and keep track of things they say because you may be able to pick up something, <coughs> something that took place in a 
private conversation. Maybe, you know, they had a rapport with these informants. So they may hint that a private conversation took place that could help your client, that could help the defendant. So if you get any any um, material confirming that, you get a comment where the host may say something or they're on the show together and they bring something up, it's very important you save that and build it as, far, as, as part of your case and trial preparation. You want to remember that person as somebody who could be subpoenaed to really dive into that issue or maybe something that could help your defendant it may be something that really shines the light on the character of this informant. And that's why it's so important, folks, if you're preparing for trial or your loved one's preparing for trial and you're aware that they're facing some of these... Uh, uh, excuse my hands, I'm just fixing my motion detector. Uh, and if they're facing some of these informants who are now on YouTube, it's important that you really stay on top of that. You know, Try to follow the channels they go on see who's hosting them, see what's being said, and pay attention to those conversations. Uh, we have a few of those. We have, um, uh, again, I don't want to give away too much. This will all come out in the appeal, but we have host, another host, uh, same type situation. Did, a, uh, did episode after episode, you know, was a co-host with an informant, and there was a lot of things said where that host is going to have to explain and clarify and divulge what the defense is going to need. We, there's certain things, again, I can't be too particular, but we're going to need more information. And my point just is, folks, all of these people platforming these informants, I don't know if they realize, it's a good thing for us, it's a good thing for the defense team, and I hope they keep doing it, but it's, uh, that's why, in my opinion, they make a big mistake when they go from being uh, a professional a professional interview to being buddies and taking road trips and having them at the house, drinking and all to me, big mistake, but what do I know? Big mistake, but when you go down that road, it really opens the door for different things, private conversations, um, issues that the defense team needs to be made aware of, issues that the court needs to be made aware of. And a lot of that's going to come out in, uh, in time because a lot of these informants that are active, remember, folks, they're still active. They're still involved. So there may be cases down the line where they call them back, they need their information, they need some uh, insight. So it's very important for those that are maybe affected by that or you're part of a defense team or your loved one uh, had some kind of dealings with some of these informants, just stay on top of that is my advice. And uh, you have to pay attention to the details. Pay attention to... Uh, comments, pay attention to remarks that they may make to the uh, informant. If the co-host is friendly with them and they're talking about maybe a private conversation and you notice that the conversation may have had something to do with charges that maybe a defendant was faced with or behavior or persona or character, anything that could help the defendant that you would want more clarification on. Always remember when the trial comes, there's the power of the subpoena. And you could flush those things out and you could try to see what was discussed. Was there things going on that was going on behind the scenes that really shows the character of this individual? As I brought up, like that example with that uh, uh, TV antenna salesman host, you know, where he was uh, uh, talking about inappropriate things that Panisi was doing. That's got to be flushed out. That's going to be a conversation that has to be explored, investigated, and dissected. And it's very important. That's why I know um, uh, people used to bring up back in the day, like, oh, I wish these 
uh, informants wouldn't be on YouTube. And I always told you, I look at that completely different. I'm glad they're on YouTube. It, it, it's an opportunity for defendants who knew they were lied upon to show the public that they were lied upon. And it's an opportunity for defendants who knew that the person in the courtroom was putting on an act of what a great person they are. It's a good opportunity to show the public, well, look, you all got fooled. This is the real person. This is the real individual. So for me, those are all good things. All good things. The other thing I wanted to dive into, I'm going to be doing some episodes probably down the road where I analyze that last courts in session episode, the one I did on Frank Pasqua, because there's so much there to really break down. Um, even the, the judge, I believe, uh, makes a remark where is basically he's manipulative. You know, he puts on one face for the courtroom and another face for his family. And he couldn't have said it, he couldn't have said it more accurately. But there's a section in there I want them to break down, and I'm going to do that on future episodes. But what I, the reason why I'm raising the issue now is there one one part in there that I want to raise. You know, it's funny, um, and I still stand by it. I raised the issue, um, well, I didn't raise it. The attorneys actually raised the issue on two different cases about John Panisi, whereas he commis committed domestic abuse against his girlfriend. And then after some time, you had different people. You had... Uh, People who did websites about organized crime people saying, oh, no, it was a mistake. You know, he didn't beat anybody. And I get it. People change their opinion. Um, everybody has to look at the situation and decide what they believe. Me, personally, I believe the victim. Others believe the informant. But I'll tell you one thing that was funny, and, and the argument made by a lot of these people that just has no weight whatsoever. A lot of these people who, who were saying, oh, he didn't hit her, he didn't beat her, they were like, well, why is there no police report? Why didn't she go to the cops? Why? And it's a shame because they're really, again, they're ignorant on domestic abuse. And the reason why I'm bringing it up in relation to the Frank Pasqua case, you really got into the mind of somebody who suffered domestic abuse when his poor wife was on the stand having to deal with, you know, explaining all that, a private matter. But if you noticed, folks, it came out. There was no police report. He punched her in her eye, gave her a huge black eye. No police report. She didn't file it till weeks later. And you know why she filed it? Because he threatened her son. And that was, you know, that was the end, which usually that is the end. Unfortunately, it was for mothers. You know, they hear something about their kid and everything changes. Unfortunately, they allow themselves to get abused. But thankfully, if they hear something with their kid, everything changes. But the reason why that struck a chord is it just goes to show how ignorant those people are who were using that as their end-all, be-all of why, oh, John Panisi didn't hit no woman. Oh, because she didn't report it? Well, you should do your homework. The same way how this lady, this victim with this other lying informant didn't report it till weeks later and only because of her son, that's when she wanted to get involved and she was telling everybody. They were even talking just to show how in denial somebody who is a victim of domestic abuses, and it's very sad, they were talking in this uh, transcript. They were talking about how they wanted to go after all people on, on the Internet. And I'm sure that includes myself who were talking about Frank Pesqua beating his wife. Now, she think about that, folks. She knew she was hit. She's in court now. We're listening to it. And she's talking about it. But when she was in the denial stage. She was actually contacting lawyers to say, oh, they're lying about my husband. He never beat me. 
So that should really give you some insight to how these, a lot of these poor women and these victims of domestic abuse, you know, they're so, they're so isolated in their thoughts and, and they're so scared probably and so concerned that they just, they want to hide that secret. And the other thing that those who made the ignorant comment about, oh, no police report and this and that, they should look at the statistics. Just Google the statistics of how many women who were domestically abused actually filed a report. I pulled up a statistic, and you can look at it, 40%. They say 40% of the women who are the victim of domestic abuse report it. That means 60% of women are just dealing with it because they're stuck in this toxic, horrible relationship. So again, for me, it was very clear. I look at all the facts. I look at... I looked at the whole situation. I looked at the woman, the victim being in the courtroom, the filings given by the defendants. And again, if you notice, <clears throat> those who try to dismiss it, they use the same arguments. Oh, where's the police report? Oh, uh, the defense put it in their motion, so it don't count because they collide. False on both accounts. You can't say, oh, I need a police report without understanding the statistical information behind those police reports. How many women file a police report? How many women are in denial where the husband's beating them and they're saying, oh, they're not beating them? Look at this last case with Frank Pesqua. Not only was the wife being beat, she was actually contacting lawyers to stop people on social media from talking about her being beat, saying they were lying. When in her head, she knew it was true. She had the physical scars to show it's true. But she convinced herself otherwise because they feel they have to really shroud this secret and really keep it tight and nobody must know about it. They almost lie to themselves. And they're stuck in this, this sad cycle. And it really is sad. And when you start to see it play out, it's a very sad thing. And that's why when I saw individuals saying, well, where's the police report? There's no police report. And in my head, I'm like, so that's what you're using to determine if this woman was abused? A police report? Have you even Googled once the t statistics on domestic abuse? Have you even looked up what goes on with domestic abuse and what the victims have to deal with and how they're not always readily available to talk about it? I don't know, crazy. But that's what we push back is, folks. We believe the victims, we believe those impacted by these lying informants. So the lying informants could have their team, the voiceless have, their, have us. They have the We Push Back uh, supporters, and they have myself doing what we can to bring their story to light and bring attention to it. I think that was pretty much it for today that I wanted to cover. Uh, one thing that I do want to cover, this is more like a uh, uh, more you know type tip for families who maybe have loved ones that are incarcerated, a huge resource, a valuable resource that I found is on uh, Facebook. They have groups and different groups based on the uh, institution where your loved one's housed. And uh, just I just wanted to give that tip because if you join those groups, you could get a lot of information. You know, as you know, uh, often sometimes the jail will shut down if there's a fight and then there's no visiting or uh, they can't make phone calls. And those groups really are helpful for just seeing what's going on. And it just helps you not have to worry so much about your loved one if you don't hear from them. A lot of times you'll get updates in the groups. So I recommend for even defense teams, anybody, uh, just to join those. And really it helps keep your finger on the pulse to what's going on. 
it's just something I wanted to share because I am a member of a couple of those groups for family members and also for clients, and I just try to keep track of everything that goes on. So I wanted to share that with everybody. Uh, I think that's it for today, folks. Um, everything's moving along, moving along very well for the Justice Tech Pros podcast, for the We Push Back uh, website. I gave some updates yesterday on that channel. The hats are all but gone. I, I don't think we have any left. I have to check with my team, but I think they're all pretty much gone. So hope everybody enjoys them. Uh, we had a lot go out overseas, which is pretty cool. Some people in Italy, Scotland, the UK. So that would be cool, everybody wearing the hats. And again, I'm going to work on that uh, compilation video, second one to put up. I like to just show the supporters that they're appreciated, so I try to include them as much as I can. And I want to put it on the website. After all, you guys are all part of this. You all help spread the word. You are all here when I started it. So i like for you to be involved in it and really be part of the progression. Uh, and that's it for today. That was episode 99. I covered everything I want to cover. Till next time. You've been listening to the Justice Tech Pros podcast with Dominic Crea, one of the most unique podcasts on the internet, discussing the obstacles the defense team faces when trying a case, what goes on behind the scenes during pretrial and motion phase, holding defense attorneys accountable, making sure they're fighting for their clients, the difference between textbook law and how things truly play out in a courtroom, and everything in between. And everything in between. We hope you've gotten some useful and practical information from this show and we'll be back soon until then find us on twitter facebook and instagram at justice tech pros to email the show with questions and comments it's podcast at justice tech pros.com till next time this is justice tech pros podcast and dominic crea signing off